0: This week, Anne and host emeritus Lewis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest Ken Jordan, CEO, co-founder, and editorial director of Lucid News. Ken joins us this week to discuss the trajectory of psychedelic mainstreaming and how it's still affected by the legacy of the 60s counterculture plus his experiences with plant medicine and how it led to the founding of Lucid News. In this episode, Ken also emphasizes the importance of education and talks about Lucid's Psychedelic U Beta, which publishes clear, fact-checked articles reviewed by top experts and serves as a starting point for those new to psychedelics as well as experienced psychonauts. If you're interested in learning more about Ken and Lucid News, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Ken and Lucid on top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ken Jordan of Lucid News.
1: Welcome to the Green Rush. We are so excited to talk to Ken Jordan, CEO and editorial director of Lucid News, really one of the um, most in-depth, well-researched, um, you know, publications in the psychedelics industry. Uh, so, you know, from a from the standpoint of a reporter who really knows his shit this is Ken. So Ken, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Um, you have worn a ton of hats in your career, but before we get to lucid news, tell us about your journey to lucid.
2: My journey to lucid. Um,
1: that's your, that's your memoir title. You're
2: welcome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, Or, or it could be, it could be as opposed to getting clear. It's getting lucid. Things were getting lucid. Things have gotten more lucid. That's how we ended up here. Um, I've been in the, I guess, the psychedelic world for a couple of decades. You know, pretty, pretty engaged. Um, and before that, I guess I spent a lot of time in the in in the world that you know encompasses psychedelics, among other things. I kind of grew up in the middle of the nineteen sixties counterculture. Uh, my father was a book publisher um, who published a lot of the, um, you know, figures from that era, including people like Allen Ginsberg and Abby Hoffman and and a lot of the folks who were even associates with psychedelics, right? Um, so it was always around when I was young. And um, as I, uh, you know, chose a career path, I certainly was surrounded by people who were doing psychedelics in various ways. And when things... Really took off kind of sort of the beginning of what you would call, say, a psychedelic revival, or, you know, some people call a renaissance. Um, I got very involved personally in plant medicine and ayahuasca ceremonies, which were very important to me personally and um, had a lot to do with how I see the world uh, today. Um, so I, um, you know, before Lucid News, uh, I was more of a digital media guy. I started the first online music magazine, it was called SonicNet, um, which got bought by MTV um, in the mid nineties and became the centerpiece of MTV's online presence back when MTV was a music thing. And um, and I did a lot of, you know, sort of, you know, I wrote the textbook for the history of computer media that they teach to art students. Um, and I was doing a lot of consulting With organizations like Amnesty International and um, Peter Gabriel's uh, human rights organization, Witness. This is, you know, but, you know, around that time, I also was becoming more personally involved with my own psychedelic journey and what I felt um, it was calling me to, which was an engagement with what you, you could say is more broadly called consciousness culture you know, uh, alternative perspectives on uh, seeing, um, you know, human wellness, connection, collaboration, environmental awareness, um, and um, where, you know, psychedelics plays a role. And I was part of a group that started something called Evolver now close to 20 years ago. Created a a network of people uh, globally at 3 million on Facebook and whatnot and published an online magazine called Reality Sandwich, did a lot of events and eventually opened a shop in New York called the Alchemist Kitchen, for those who know New York. I love it. There was a, a botanical dispensary and tonic bar. It is now on Crosby Street, just south of Houston. You are welcome to come by and say hi. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I just really got, and we did a lot of online education with people like Dennis McKenna and John Perkins, and um, Albert Rovialdo and a lot of folks who were very deep in the shamanic side of psychedelics. But um, that was back in the day.
3: I, I love I, I've been to the Optimus Kitchen and back in the 2020 campaign, I think it was when it was in 2019 when Marianne Williamson was running for president. You had a fundraiser for her there. Uh, and my wife and I went. Um, it was it was it was such a great space and it was a great energy and it totally fit in with her. Um, Before we go back or we come to today, let's say back in the sixties, right? You, you mentioned Abby Hoffman and Alan Ginsberg um, and, and and your dad is a publisher. And you know, while this is not something that occurred to me when we were doing the research, did your dad publish, steal this book? And if so, how did he justify the title?
2: My dad was not able to publish steel this book because the book was so hugely libelous that any publisher who published it at that time, this was 1970. And, and Abby Hoffman right. wrote this book. This is a um, book written by Abby Hoffman, who at yeah. that point was a well-known uh you know political activist who had been part of the Chicago Nine, Seven, Seven. Seven. <laughs> um, and uh was, you know uh, a, a leading anti-war activist, a civil rights activist um, who had brought so essentially created a marriage between the hippie dropout movement and the uh, anti-war and civil rights activist movement um, through cultural acts, like bringing together a group of people, thousands of people, to circle the Pentagon, during a demonstration and to hold hands in that circle around the Pentagon and to levitate it. And they would insist that the Pentagon lifted about a foot and a half off the ground, though there was no photograph taken. But I don't think, you know, cameras were allowed. And uh, and so Abby uh, was, uh, you know, uh, created this book, did this book called Steal This Book, (laughs) um, which was filled with all kinds of advice about essentially how to subvert what was considered the quote-unquote establishment society. And um, he brought it to every publisher in New York and they all turned him down because they were willing to take the legal risks. But what my dad did was arrange for Abby to publish it himself. And my father's company, which he he did with his friend who owned it, it who's called Grove Press, um, they distributed Steal This Book. So Steal This Book ended up being stolen a lot uh, at bookstores, but they still, it became a bestseller and sold 250,000 copies. Um,
3: the best name! It's the best name I've ever heard for any title for a book at all. Like I can't even, I, cause I've seen it on the shelf and it's just so tempting. You know, it's just, it is so tempting. And that, that, that counterculture ethic that, Abby talked about, you know, you think about the way that Allen Ginsberg wrote in the 60s in Greenwich Village, where you grew up, um, permeates to this day, a lot of what is going on in the psychedelic movement. And there is two, really two sides to this movement, right? There is the historic, indigenous, um, self-expression side of the movement. And then there is the drug development, intellectual property, medical side. And there's this unbelievable tension between the two and an incredible both reliance upon each other and lack of trust of each other. You sit in the middle of this, you know, lucid news reports, um, straight news on both sides. When you look at this, this balance, this tension, what is your take? Like, how do you see this playing out where,
2: what, what happens? Well, it's interesting because I personally don't feel that tension. And I don't feel that tension because I'm pretty seeped in the history and I know how we got here, right? Which unfortunately, for all, <coughs> a lot of people just really don't understand or know well enough what began in the 60s with psychedelics and with the cultural movement it was a part of and what it has since led to and kind of lose perspective. And then kind of and, 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 and frankly, from from my perspective, don't understand necessarily very well how the medical thing really has come about. Right. And how, what it means, you know, in terms of the kind of cultural change and significant you know, the real cultural shift that um, I think a lot of the 60s movement was really intending to create, which I think it's successfully done. Right. Um, medical movement around psychedelics has really been embraced by the mainstream in ways that those of us who've been around psychedelics for a long time would never have expected 20 years ago. And one reason that that's happened is because so many people in our society have done psychedelics, have direct personal experience with psychedelics, so that they're not demonized by those people. And a lot of those folks are in really influential positions. They're um, you know, they're working in the FDA and they are in Congress and they're in the White House, right? Not saying that Joe Biden has done LSD, but just saying, you know, there are people who have had these experiences who are in the military and uh working at the VA. Um hmm. now it's not. Only those people who are supportive of psychedelics uh, entering the medical mainstream. But because of their, because essentially you have a society of people who are familiar or know people who are familiar or close enough, right, Um, and who have shifted. In you know, in terms of what the societal attitudes around psychedelics are, that even though there's been a there was a essentially a fifty year propaganda campaign through the drug war to demonize and you know psychedelics and to scare people away from them, um, there's a lot of folks who are in positions of, of of influence who are supportive, and that is a direct consequence of the mass use of psychedelics in the 60s that has then essentially permeated the culture and changed things. The other well, thing that changed that I think I don't, if I, I don't know if I agree with you. No, you don't. Okay. No. Yeah. Well, so, you know, if you
3: think back to the 50s, right? Um, before around the time that Gordon Wasson's story came out. 50s. There was right, there was this there was a tremendous amount of work being done at Hopkins and then the the work that was done you know at NYU up in Canada you know all that was really serious or at least the most serious research that could be done at the time and up until the point that LSD escaped the lab so to speak and we were all encouraged to tune in turn on and drop out the the media did not take a negative take on this. And once the Nixon administration decided to attack psychedelics, because because once you tripped, you, you were more than likely not going to tear up your draft card. The media turned on psychedelics. So, so, you know, I'm not so sure that what happened with the permeation of psychedelics broadly was a good thing for the movement. It well, is so, a thing. So and I, it I and we, can't un- with that.
2: we can't unwind that, it. I know, I know that is that is a very common way that people look back on what happened in, at that period. But that's, I think you can find a lot of historical evidence that that was not necessarily how it really played out. Um, and, and the way that it did play out from mm-hmm. my perspective is that you did have some research happening. that um, you also had the CIA using C, uh, LSD in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, Now I got to remember the name of the covert operation, but frankly, they were in very dangerous. MK Ultra. MK Ultra, right? So it was not uh, psychedelics were not seen as a necessarily universally as a healing vehicle by researchers and by the universities, right? They were being there was there was a lot of different things that were going on at once. Um, It's also true that many of the departments. In these universities that were involved with psychedelic research were also involved in the cold war and were at a time it was during a time of mass segregation in this country, legal segregation. Um, and uh and there was a a, a sense that there was essentially at, at that point, there was a real cleavage between those who were opposing the Vietnam War and the um and, and this and the segregation, the pro-segregation laws in the country, and those who were really confronting them. And many of the universities at that time, the university programs, were largely staffed by people who were essentially in what was then known as the establishment, right? Um, So how those psychedelics were being used at that time was not necessarily going to lead to the kind of outcome that all of us would like to have seen today, right? It was, it was a complicated situation, and there was a reason why certain people in the academic institutions felt it was important to get them out of the academic institutions, because they were feeling that there was a resistance and a, pot- a potential for manipulation that they thought was not healthy or to everybody's benefit. Well that that is no not
3: fundamentally different than the concerns amongst the historic community, the underground therapists, the indigenous use of these drugs today has when when company, when people look at companies like Compass and Atai and Small Pharma and you know all of the companies that are using intellectual property shields to create FDA-approved medicines. I mean, it doesn't seem truly different between what you were describing back in the sixties and the seventies
2: from today. I think the difference is that from what I can tell, what all these companies are actually focusing on right now are essentially healing modalities. And this is the other thing I think is really interesting about the difference between now and say 50 years ago is that um, there is, you very rarely talked, heard talk about psychedelics in those days as uh, as tools for healing it was much more about um using uh, a substance in order to essentially dehypnotize you from feeling uh the restrictions of the society that you had embedded in your sense of who you are and how to operate in the world and then what this by taking a psychedelic you would break open these, manacles that are holding you back from experiencing all of the possibilities that are available in life um and that that could be very disorienting and it was for many people back then um you don't hear that from people so much anymore when it takes psychedelics um it's a very different kind of climate right um and uh where I think we're living in a much more fluid society for the better, for better or for worse. But there's a real sense <clears> of <throat> shifting and, and, and changing. Um, whereas in those days, what you when you read the contemporaneous accounts by the people who were doing psychedelics in the fifties and sixties again and again, what comes up is um, I just suddenly came to realize that the, that the laws that govern, you know, social life, our society, are arbitrary and crazy. You hear this again and again, you read these things again and again and again. And that is not what's happening for people in the same, it happens to be true too today, it's also crazy. But that is, I think we already know that. I think when we take our psychedelics today, we already realize
3: mm.
2: how fluid- It's just it is. a different lexicon. It's a You're different just moment. Different- it's a different moment. And what happened back then was that people would go into crisis. A lot of people were in the crisis when they felt that the that the, 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 um, the rules that were governing social life were suddenly not there or fluid. Um, whereas, you know, I think that today when people are taking psychedelics, there's an awareness of the heart. Nobody talked about opening of the heart in the 50s and 60s, generally speaking. Um, in If you read the literature about psychedelics, it was not about heart opening. Um, And the heart opening thing, which I think is so interesting now, is particularly interesting coming from the lips of, say, Rick Perry and other, uh, you know, Republican conservatives who I would have thought several years ago when they when you hear about veterans and first responders being depressed about, you know, from their experience on the front lines the old world way of responding to that was toughen up. Yeah. You know, what's your problem? Sissy, what's your problem? Right. Stop Get up. off I your ass mm-hmm. and, you know, stop complaining. Now there is a shift, a tremendous shift. I think um, uh, away from that towards the sense that, you know, for many people who are from that, you know, who, who are coming from that perspective going, you know, people have been wounded and they deserve compassion. And they should be healed. And if we have medicines that can help heal them, that's powerful. So the the that impulse does seem to be largely what's driving um the 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 corporadelic use of psychedelics, from what I can see. You um,
1: Have
2: you ever heard the phrase delic No,
1: but I mean you Love should it. that.
2: No, this is not my phrase. I oh,
1: okay, I tell you
2: right. <laughs> it is, it is so now. Yeah. It, it, is, it is definitely, it's in circulation, right? Um, you know, it, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But the idea that, you know, somehow the profit motive that's involved in creating pharmaceutical-grade medicines out of psychedelics that could be approved by the FDA um, is, uh, you know, inherently, inherently uh, problematic. I do think it raises questions and, it, and there's things that we got to pay attention to, but, you know, having talked to a good number of people who are working in this industry, uh, I'm convinced that many of them are motivated truly from a place of wanting to help heal others. I,
3: I don't think I've encountered anybody, even the ones who are most corporate who still don't at least espouse. I want to help people. There's, There are, everybody says, I want to make money, but, but they all, I mean, and you and I have worked with dozens and dozens of these people. Now, have you experienced anybody who you really want? Yes. Not that you have to name them.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they all think that they're doing like God's work, you know, or, or mm. a higher power's work. Um, But do, I guess, Ken, do you think that the, you know, you're talking about like how the lexicon has kind of changed, but that this idea of integration has been more formalized so that, you know, you're not just giving someone, uh, you know, a, a cup of tea or a, a pill or a mushroom and being like, go off and do your thing. Like, do you think that that's a meaningful evolution here?
2: I don't think of it as an evolution necessarily. I just think of it as a, a kind of, you know, product framing. Um for most people, I would expect that as things move forward and the mainstreaming progresses, um, most people will probably not be, as as is true today, taking psychedelics in a medical context. Um, in a in a that is to say, an FDA approved, you know, insurance covered medical context, um, and there should be, and I hopefully expect that there will be therapeutic models available that allow for more, in, you know, uh, for, for the kinds of settings where you have groups, yeah, mushrooms are available, there are therapists there if you for, if, for people who would like to have a therapeutic engagement before and after um, therapy is not necessarily a part of a psychedelic experience for everybody is my sense, honestly, although i also don't think that therapy is the same, you know, that not every psychedelic experience is therapeutic or most of them, frankly, I don't think really are therapeutic in that way. I mean, it can be incredibly, you know, enlightening and transformative. Um, some people like to confuse therapy for the psychedelic trip. I don't think it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: I, I just, can we pause here for a second?
2: Yeah, sure. Because, you know,
3: if if the container in which something is taken has a major influence on what the experience is, right? We, you, if we all accept the thesis of set and setting and dose as the three key components to the the container that you are in to describe what you are trying to do, if you are in a therapeutic setting, then by definition, the experience is therapeutic in nature, right? If you have a therapist who is sitting with you, helping you guide through the the experience. It
2: is therapy. If well, you therapy don't have okay. A th- so that's there's a very particular kind of thing. Well, what I'm thinking of for therapy is specifically somebody has a some kind of mental condition that they are, mm-hmm. would like to have treated, you know, particularly those who are, you know, something serious like PTSD or treatment resistant depression, anorexia. There are certain things that are there's serious medical conditions. Addiction. Addiction for sure, right? Um and those Psychedelics can be extraordinarily effective in helping to treat those conditions. But in most cases, the effectiveness is dependent on a therapeutic engagement with a therapist. Now, there are people who do have incredible healings without a therapist who have those conditions. No question about it, right? And I know quite a few, right? But in many cases, most cases, I think it's, it is a smart move to work with a therapist. There has been uh, a kind of dogma that gets been thrown around in the psychedelic world in the last couple of years, last few years, that a psychedelic experience is the equivalent of t- 10,000 hours of therapy or something like yeah, that.
3: Yeah, that's...
2: Now, I got to tell you, I do know enough people who've taken a good number of psychedelics and they say, man, that was so therapeutic for me, and they could use a therapist. Well, wait a second. It's not
3: the it, same it, thing. Oh, again, Again, that dogma is contingent right mm-hmm. on having a therapist with you you know there, this is this is that tension that we're talking about the the medical versus the mystical right the well, self therapist is is that
1: does a therapist yeah. can, could a shaman count as a therapist or a guide count oh, i as hate a, the word
3: shaman but yeah
1: or, uh,
3: why because anybody who usually claims to be a shaman isn't like I've had this revelation because from that, God, that and therefore the I words, can,
1: like, or well, it's the there people are. who claim
3: to be, yeah, right. Like shaman usually is a self-appointed title, which means I have had this vision and come follow me, and I can help you have the same type of vision. I'm uncomfortable with that, but but can the the this tension, right? There is this incredible move to decriminalize, to fundamentally legalize which is okay. I don't, I'm not opposed to it personally, but the medicalization of this, if this is designed, if these drugs are treated like drugs, and I mean like the, the FDA word drug, right? Then there has to be a container around them that are, is used in a medical setting. If you want to go out and take a fistful of mushrooms and commune with nature in the woods, go do it. But that is not a therapeutic in the, medical sense of therapeutic setting
2: it's just not right. it's and, a wonderful and, 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 experience exactly right? so my sense is that you're going to have both and that it's not necessarily an evolution to say you're, you know we used to do it in the woods and now we do it in a in a and you know in a more medicalized environment the medicalized environment is could be and seems to be an extremely effective way for certain people Uh, to have uh, important healing experiences. Um, And I think there's going to be a good number of people who are much more comfortable with doing psychedelics in that kind of medicalized environment than they would just taking mushrooms in the woods. Um, And it's for them. There's a lot of people who need real you know, who would use that treatment. And I think there's no question from my perspective that they're going to be adopt. Those treatments will be adopted. And um, over time, there'll be enough therapists trained to really hold the space for the people who need it. And that could be that's millions of people.
3: Are you worried that 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 the decrim movement and the straight up uh, legalization movement is going to. Push psychedelics down a very similar path to cannabis. And what I mean by that is if you think about how the legalization movement for cannabis started, it was medical in, in nature, but it was really a stalking horse for consumer packaged goods. All of the multi-state operators, all of the brands, they always talked initially about treating patients, but they wanted to just get into a store and let you go in and buy whatever you want. Again we work in the space we are completely in favor of, of legalization of cannabis but because of this bullshit um you know talk about patients first it really screwed up the industry into this really weird melange of different state regulations federal illegality no fda oversight no banking no nothing right it's just this wild west and it's still just say screwed up. And there is, you know, you look at companies like Atai, MAPS, and the others that we mentioned who are pursuing the FDA route, they're, they are plowing a path for future decrim and legalization that may be years, if not decades down the line, but in a way that will be a lot safer for patients today than doing what cannabis has done, which is go willy-nilly. I mean, that, that that's my personal concern. You know, but I could be completely batshit crazy
2: beyond being batshit crazy. No, you're not batshit crazy Um, too much. My sense is that looking ahead at how this is going to develop eventually legally is almost a moot point. When you have like in 2020, there were 7 million people who did psychedelics in the U.S., right? That number has absolutely gone up in the last three years. That was before the Netflix show. And you have, you know, essentially, you know, unregulated market candy bars available in shops all over the country. If somebody wants to get mushrooms now, or they want to get psilocybin, it's they can find it. Right. So whether or not the law is keeping up with the reality on the ground, um, there's mass use happening today. Right, The problem is because of prohibition, it's not being really understood well or closely watched. Product is not being regulated. Um, and people who um, could use support and help who are not having good experiences, and there's definitely people who are gonna have bad experiences, and we know that. Um, not everybody's gonna have a fantastic psych- a psychedelic experience. A lot of people do get hurt. I mean, a lot could be 5%, but that's still a lot of, when you're talking about 10 million people. Um, but because of the laws, they're not being addressed, right? And um, prohibition doesn't work. So what we're dealing with now, I think much more, the real concern is the lack of education
3: yeah,
2: and the lack of community support for people who are having psychedelic experiences or are drawn to them or the people who are in the professional fields where they're engaging with people who are having psychedelic experiences and would like to know more, whether it's you know, you know, people who are uh, in the medical field or law enforcement or, you know, first responders of different kinds, um, policymakers. I think the real issue right now is where's the education and where is the and, and where's the community building? Um, and that's what's going to help to create a safer environment for everybody. We know how to have safe psychedelic experiences relatively speaking. We also know that there are some people who are going to have bad experiences and you can't, even if you try to do everything you can to screen them out, it's not going to always work. And so you need to then be ready to take care of those people and help those people when they have a crisis. Um, Most people are not going to have the crisis. By far, most people are not going to have the crisis. Do Um, you
1: think there's been an overcorrection for a lot of these companies and organizations touting that psychedelics is going to be the cure-all and that you know, um, I, I often reference, you know, Bob Jesse talking to Michael Pollan at PS twenty twenty three. Um, you know, saying that, you know, those words "safe" and "effective" from the FDA are problematic because it's not safe for everyone. It's not effective for everyone. Um, so, do you think that in a, in a rush to um, to prove that these substances have ter- substances have tremendous value for some people, that it's not, it, it you know. It's not for everybody.
2: Well, you know, the thing is that all drugs have risks. Right. Right. And the FDA is approving drugs that have risks all the time. Yeah. Uh, And you do, doctors do their best to screen against it. And still, despite that, there are people who have extremely adverse reactions to certain medications. Um, That's just, you know, part of the process. There's no way you're going to create an environment where, um, you know, Nobody is ever going to be at risk. What you can do is to prepare people for what happens if something, if there's an adverse reaction. Right. Um, and you know, I one of the Bob Jesse examples I like to use is um, you know, he talks about how uh when you know, driving, uh you're not gonna stop everybody from having car crashes, right? Uh you know that there's gonna be some challenging moments you just you know that just you expect it right and then you build an infrastructure to support people who right. do have you know bumper to bumper issues right and
1: it's safer than it was you know that and that you know build like you said building this infrastructure of harm reduction and and what to expect I mean I what comes to mind is the the recent Alaska Airlines pilot where you know everyone <laughs> over his um, supposed use of, of mushrooms. And, you know, um, I think the whole industry was just like, Oh God, like, no. (laughs) Um, but because there is this lack of education among the mainstream of, you know, what, what these substances do and what they don't do and who should use them and who should not.
2: This comes back to education again, right? Because you're going to have stories like this. Yeah. So he had a bad experience, right? Um, and, uh, he didn't have a bad experience
3: though. Well, right. He had an experience that was two days prior. It wasn't that, he
2: was I tripping mean, in the cockpit.
1: Well, there's some reporting that he had done it right before as well.
2: But I don't know. Well, I, but, I, I just to can... say, let's be real though. This is the real thing. The real thing is that there are people. Not a lot. You don't need a lot. There are people who have bad experiences two, three, four, five days after their psychedelic experience. Yes, it does happen. All right. So all right. the industries response is oh my god we can't ever admit that somebody has a bad experience yeah. because it's going to make it impossible for us to get legal yeah and yeah. to me that is an inappropriate way to respond the way to respond really is wow we need a lot more education so people understand that occasionally this will happen and when it does happen don't demonize the guy help him because he just had a really bad experience um and at the same time, um, it's like,
3: I'm sorry, it's like the, the, the warnings that you see on every drug on TV. Side effects may include your eyes falling out of your head, your ears falling off your face, and your nose turning inside out. I mean, it's like, yes, everything, there is a potential for negative. For me, when I saw that story, I had a different reaction. Um, you know, since Michael Pollan's book came out, The media, for the most part, has almost exclusively been reporting positive stories about psychedelics, right? It's the cure-all for every mental disease that there possibly is. It's the way to find God. We're going to recreate the Good Friday experiment. Like all of this amazing, like it's just breathless positivity, you know, moment after moment, story after story. And this was the first story. That sounded a warning bell that said, oh, maybe the media isn't going to buy our bullshit uh, about this positivity. And does this mean similar to what happened again, going back to the uh, analog to the 60s, that we're going to start to see more questions and a turn against psychedelics because. We know that psychedelics threaten the generic drug manufacturers. They threaten the big pharma in lots of ways, and might they be quietly starting to plant negative stories? I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer yes, to that. But I,
1: but I think you're you have such a short memory here. Like, yeah, there was one negative story this week about like about psychedelics. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm thinking Maureen Dowd and her like whatever, whatever. You know, I think she did edibles, cannabis edibles. But like, you know, there are negative stories that come out. It's just that's the one that bubbles to the surface for you.
3: Yes, (laughs)
1: you're right. Yeah, that's the first time.
3: By the way, goldfish.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Meaning, I have the memory of a goldfish. If it's not right in front of me, I don't pretend (laughs) to remember it. Right? Like it's it's like a five minute memory. I'm sorry. Your name is? Yeah, exactly.
1: You are.
2: And I know you how. (laughs) What that story meant for me was that it's a a confirmation to me that mainstream media coverage of psychedelics is going to be very thin. Whatever it is, it's thin. And it may be very positive one day, and it may suddenly be negative the next. But for the most part, the editors who are signing these stories for the news platforms that are out there. themselves don't know much or anything about psychedelics and so they're kind of going with their gut they're like oh this one's gonna this is a grabber this is a oh, like look at that hey you know vets are taking psychedelics to heal from ptsd that's amazing that that's that got my attention right so this is where most media coverage is and that's why we started lucid news
1: Mm -hmm. Good. good pivot (laughs) (laughs)
2: you <laughs> <laughs> no, need to pivot good job Got
1: <laughs>
2: kind of pivot um <laughs> but uh no this is exactly this this was the whole that was the whole intention right is because we saw a few years ago that there's all this energy and money and focus coming into the psychedelic world and not a lot of people who are writing about it and knowing anything about it so ann harrison My co-founder and Faye Sackleridis and our other core members of the team, um, who have been in this world for a long time and know it really well, came together to do a you know old school journalistic platform that you know essentially follows AP style rules to write articles about what's happening in the field, so that people would actually just be able to follow it and understand it, and it's written from the perspective of people who actually can cut through the surface. And, and ask the kinds of questions that an informed psychedelic expert would ask. Um, and, you know, that's that. I love that the mainstream media has been doing positive stories about psychedelics, because I lived through a whole period of time where that was impossible. Couldn't even imagine it. When I started my first psychedelic publication, mm-hmm. Reality Sandwich, with a core team of other folks back in you know, 2007, um, we were in the exact opposite situation. It wasn't journalism. It was much more like personal essays and that kind of thing. It was more, it was much more sort of subjective perspectives um, about psychedelics and and and, and related experience. Um, but I can't tell you how many people told me back then, you know, you're going to get arrested for this. You can't publish articles about ayahuasca on the internet. They're going to come. The cops are going to come knock on the door. And you know, when you when are they going to stop you? That was the kind of thing. Those were the questions. That that those were the statements that I heard. Literally, all the time. So now, many years later, you know, you see mainstream media going, hey, psychedelics actually are potentially beneficial. That's great. I do think that they went too far um, but uh, and, 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 and kind of lost track of the reality of the experience. But I don't expect mainstream media to ever do the kinds of articles that we do. For instance, um, we just ran an article about what's happening now in Kentucky,
1: yeah, we'd love to talk
2: to you about that. And Say know,
1: more things. Hmm, I'm sorry? Say more things.
2: Say more things. <laughs> um, well, Kentucky is fascinating because it looks like there's going to be a state commission that's going to approve $42 million for a public-private partnership to create a medical model, ibogaine therapy, uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy for opioid use disorder. Um, because we know that ibogaine, you know, from anecdotal evidence, from what they call open-label research—not in the lab—but there's a lot of evidence that shows that ibogaine, psychedelic-assisted therapy, is extremely effective for people who have opiate addictions. And um, that doesn't mean it works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it may not even it may not even work for 50%. But right now, what we've got—the only other option you have if you're if you have that kind of addiction, uh are essentially substitute opiates that you take for the rest of your life that only work for 20% or 25%. They work in the sense of like, you know, they, they keep you alive. As long as
1: they have them. Yeah. As, as long, long as you have them to, right. yeah.
2: so the 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 ibogaine, the potential for Ibogaine assisted therapy is profound. And it took uh, officials from the state of Kentucky hmm. decide to put some resources towards this in order to move towards a medical model approach that could actually be used by the states. And um, it's it looks like they're going to, hopefully, they're, they're moving towards an approval sometime later this month. Fingers crossed. Um, and so we did that article in depth to explain how they got there. Um, that has not been in the news. So for all you've seen so far, the coverage so far in the mainstream media is crazy. Kentucky is going to put $42 million towards a psychedelic therapy. Yow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: I think the your word "thin." the, the mainstream is thin on stuff like this. Um, other, and other than the clickbait G whiz factor of like, look at this conservative state, like, you know, it just, yeah, it's been a little disappointing in that regard. Um, to say the least.
3: Uh, to, yes. You know, talk about some of the other stories that you think are. So, we're, just because we know that podcasts are uh, recorded and listened to whenever, we, we are recording this on November 3rd, 2023. But, what are the biggest stories that you're covering right now beyond what's going on in Kentucky? What are the stories that you and your team are most excited about?
2: Well, we just ran an interesting article, I think, about the terrorist attack on the Israeli rave, which has certainly gotten a tremendous amount of media attention, no question, but almost none of it really explored what it meant for it to be a, a psychedelic experience, like a psychedelic event, um, which when you know, people in the rave world understand, um, that when you have that many people who are on MDMA or psilocybin in an, at an event like that, at dawn, when the sun is coming up, there's an open heartedness and a certain kind of experience that really is very profound and beautiful and powerful for those who, 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 who are there. And for the terrorist attack to have happened at that moment is not something, it's, it's just, it's, it's a devastating thought. Um, but for some reason, the psychedelic community has not really addressed this So we ran an article this week um, that, that uh, spoke with the organizers of the response, who were doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists in Israel, um, who were part of the extended rave psychedelic culture there, who organized some up to 400 volunteers to immediately respond to the survivors and to help them heal to begin their healing um and i felt that that was a really important story to get out um and to uh and, and to have you know to talk to the people who are actually there who've done the work and what it was like um yeah. i think that's uh that's the kind Good. of thing that i feel really proud about
1: and we'll make sure that we have links in our show notes there. Um, I think for, uh, you know, this, this attack, you know, certainly caught literally everybody off guard, um, you know, is there, and, and we've been talking to, to, you know, some folks about this um, in terms of trauma. Like we think that people have to go and be long time suffering with trauma in order to finally get the help or certainly like the help that, um, you know, could come through MDMA or you know other psychedelics but you know where the the I guess the common wisdom here is that the closer you're treating someone to the trauma, the better their outcomes are. So this seems even more important now that we get people you know on the ground you know working with these people who are you know, for them for young people who are going to have decades of trauma um, and maybe save them some pain later on in life. Um, if they start, you know, start dealing with this now.
2: That was the motive of the team that came together specifically. And I believe that they've already addressed, and then ran the article, I think 1,800 of the 1,900 survivors who came forward um, to asking for help, they had seen already. So it's important to see people quickly. But it's also, when you talk about the potential for psychedelic therapy to help PTSD, I mean, my God, you can also imagine... Many people, you know, I mean, they're already doing this in the Ukraine. And in, we ran an article fairly recently about um, uh, how um, a group is putting together um, psychedelic assisted therapy for people with PTSD in the Ukraine and working towards getting some government approval. Did you talk with Jonathan Dubecki about that? I didn't. Jonathan was not one of the people we spoke to for that article, I don't believe. Um but it wouldn't surprise me if he's involved. Oh,
1: he, he is. Yeah, he's been spending a lot of time in
2: Ukraine. Very interesting. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's no question you're going to need that in Gaza. think You know, like this is, this is when you start to look at where and how real change can happen because of psychedelics and the opportunities we have for healing, you know, when we think about this the terrible situation that we're now all living through, um, that there are some people who are really dedicated to working with these medicines to create paths for understanding and healing. And this is not a political statement. It's just like, you know, it's a human statement about like, how do we find ways to to address this, this, this crisis that we're in? That frankly to me is the most powerful thing about this whole movement and whether it comes through fda approved medications or whether it comes through groups that are doing psilocybin underground that we know that this is a, it can really have an impact
3: have you guys reported on the evolution of the us military's attitudes towards psychedelics I and mean, we we talked earlier about mk ultra right where that was when the army tested in the I think it was the fifty, late 50s, early sixties, using LSD as mind control to what's happening in the VA today with you know Rachel Yehuda. And you look at organizations like APA, which are led by former General Steve Zanakis, and um, um, reason for hope. Reason for hope, which is led by General Martin Steele, you see the and military that's- and that's yeah, with Marcus with, Capone
1: and Amber Capone. Yeah,
3: yeah. For, former Navy SEAL. You see the military not only moving individually as 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 former veterans into using us for healing, but you're seeing the former former generals. You know, chesties, guys who have just full of medals, who are saying, "I'm going to spend the second act of my career taking what I learned." working for the Pentagon to help those soldiers who are currently in service or those who are retired. I mean, I find that absolutely fascinating that you're seeing the military, which has, by the way, always been on the cutting edge of social change in ways that the rest of society hasn't, whether it be through integration or new new techniques um, or new, new technologies, and, you know, like I don't know. It, it always strikes me interesting when I talk to Steve Zanakis or I talk to Martin Steele. These guys served for decades, you know, and achieved high rank. You know that might. Be, I don't know if that's a story that you guys have written. I think and I'm not pitch. pitching you one. <laughs> you can pitch us. It's yeah,
1: yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> no, I actually am
3: not. It just, it's, it just, it's like it's. Such, I think it's a good, interesting story.
2: I think it's many stories. I don't think it's only one story. And we've actually, you know, as they say, embedded it in our stories, you know, over the mm-hmm. years um, since we started. Now it's been what almost almost four years, three and a half years since we started. Um, it is, it's a it. From my perspective, it is one of the most encouraging things I see on the scene at the moment that veterans and first responders are finding psychedelics to be uh, an appropriate and attractive way to address healing and trauma. And um, because it means being in touch with your heart and being open to understanding, uh, you know, what it is to to address the, the dark side and the shadow that we all live with. Um, and the It had been my sense that, and this is just me speaking as, you know, frankly, a a pretty progressive, pacifistic Democrat, Um, but it had been my sense that the military was not connected particularly well to that aspect of human existence, and that there was this sense always when I was growing up, certainly, that, um, you know, you're, you're a tough guy and you tough things out. Um, and you don't worry about all those emotional things that get in the way. They're a problem, right? Um, and the the way that at least, at least that was my understanding of it, right? And what we're seeing now, to me, is a seismic shift in a societal attitude about what it is to be in touch with with trauma. Yeah. Uh, and the importance of uh, uh, of addressing it and healing it not just for yourself but you recognize when you start to go through these processes that you're not only doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your family, you're doing it for your community. Um, and honestly when I speak with some of these you know retired generals who are involved in the psychedelic movement, I'm hearing this from them
0: mm-hmm.
2: And I never thought I would hear that from a retired General. Now, well, maybe just my narrow experience, my narrow, crazy, radical 60s background, but it is, it's is—it's very moving for me.
1: But don't you think the the important word you said there is retired um, and that they're not, um, and I'm not putting words in their mouth, I don't know this, but um, this isn't something that they're necessarily addressing when they're in power within the Oh,
2: oh no, this is interesting. I think mean, this is actually really interesting because- They're retired so they can talk publicly. Right. Okay. But the guys who haven't retired yet, they talk to them too. Okay. There's something that's going, this is what I find fascinating. One of the things I find fascinating about this moment, which by the way, brings me back to why I think Tim Leary was ultimately, ultimately did the right thing to propagate the psychedelics as broadly as he did, because you have people in the military, you have people in powerful positions within the bureaucracy who are having or have had profound psychedelic experiences that convince them that this is an important thing to do and um it's the retired ones who can talk but if you are a you know if you're a if, if you're in the joint chiefs of staff and you come out in favor of psychedelics today it's going to be a problem it's not, it's, it's going to make it harder for you to go yeah. back to the senate and ask for appropriate only 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 as it remains illegal
3: but once Maps right. gets their FDA approval, right? Like, let's let's fast forward to to July of next year, and we are all hopefully celebrating the FDA approval of MDMA-assisted therapy. Then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs can say, "Look." We want this to be part of of the
1: offboarding.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. like we somebody comes everybody. out of a yeah. war zone, we yeah. want them immediately to go to Ramstein Air Force Base and have MDMA therapy.
2: You know, like let's see cool. how it plays. I'm fascinated to see how it's gonna how how it's gonna work out. I'm not expecting every soldier to have MDMA therapy, but um, you well, know, not
1: every soldier has PTSD either. You know.
2: Well, as you know, we also know that more people have P- who have PTSD are not soldiers or have yes. not been soldiers, right? Many of them are women yeah. who have had sexual abuse. Okay. The entire has world happened. dealing with COVID has, has a form of
3: small-t trauma that is going to affect us for decades, right? Like forever. It is going to inform how anybody who is sentient and conscious now thinks for the for the rest of our lives.
2: Yeah. I think that's real. There's, there's so, I mean, I'll go one step further, right? My sense is that we're living in a, in a world where our primary contact with most people is through devices that alienate us from one another. And uh, for the, for the most part, you know, using social media tools that have algorithms that are designed to put us at each other's throats. And there's a way. Why would you say that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to retweet that? Um, <laughs> I'm actually not. A- <laughs> Whatever it's called I, I, now. <laughs> re You re exit now rather than retweet? I, I, I have
3: no idea. I, I stopped on social uh, in, during COVID. I abandoned social media.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, well, there you go. Good. I mean, I barely use it, honestly, I use it for the company. I've still got to figure out my own personal social media practice. It's, it's been pretty erratic. Um, but I definitely, I'll tell you right now, during the last few weeks, I'm looking at it almost none. I try to do everything I can to avoid it, because I yeah. think all it does is is pollute your brain. It's, it's a It's a cesspool right now. But just to say, my sense is that the anecdote to this condition are healthy, community-based, psychedelic experiences. That connect you back to your body, that help you understand what it is to live on a planet where things grow out of the ground. And that you can, you know, that you can take a jump in a in a stream somewhere and you know and, and be part of nature.
3: Yes, uh, get out of the cesspool and let's go swim in the ocean.
2: I think that's where this is going. And and there are quite a few studies that show that psychedelic experiences really do um, support a re-engagement with the natural world. Um, And aside from the mystical experiences that people have, they make them feel connected to everything.
3: So, Ken, Uh, we're we're just a a little bit past an hour, um, and we want to be respectful of your time. First of all, we definitely want to have you back. Um, whether it's, uh, to talk about just more news that's going on or just to talk because it is truly a, 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 an engaging conversation. Um, and, and I know I dominated it and I apologize that I sucked all the air out of the room. Um, but I like Ken, I consider Ken a friend and getting this opportunity to talk to Ken is, is like a joy for me. Um, so we definitely want to have you back. Um, and I we also want to
2: thank you so much. I mean, it was very sweet of you. I really, yeah.
3: So we also want to give you the last word. So whatever you want to wrap with um, here, uh, including giving us all of the details on how to read Lucid News and support Lucid News, because Lucid News is a, is both supported by donors and advertisers. Um, so any companies out there who are looking for a way to reach the most important, well-read, what most literate audience in psychedelics, Lucid is a great place to, to de- deploy your ad dollars, but also um anybody who wants to support you know important journalism giving them money is a great place to donate um, because the industry the psychedelic industry needs a a gadfly and truth speaker like lucid and i'm now going to shut up and let you say whatever the hell you want
1: go That's on gad, gadfly and ken
2: <laughs> um, well thank you i do appreciate that yeah please everybody check out lucid news the website is at lucid.news, no.com lucid.news um and uh, sign up for our newsletter and um and 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 you know try to, we're doing our best to stay on top of the latest stories in the psychedelic space and then you know click through there there's like 500 articles or something the you know uh, you know if you want to get a sense of what's been happening in the field over the last few years um, and we've also recently this summer we launched the beta site for another project we call psychedelic u letter u like university it's psychedelicu.net, and that is a uh, essentially it's the beginning we have we we're only just sort of making the first pass towards it but it's it's meant to be effectively a wikipedia for psychedelics written by people who know something about the topic and, and embedded by experts and we're doing it in partnership with some of the leading uh these sort of knowledge-based organizations in the field who are providing us with content and reviewing the content. So it's psychedelic letter U, psychedelic N-E-T. Um, So please check that out.
0: A special thanks to Ken Jordan, CEO, co-founder, and editorial director of Lucid News. If you'd like to learn more about all the things that Ken is up to at Lucid News, you can find them on the internet at lucid.news, as well as on Twitter at site. If you'd like to connect with us here at the Green Rush, you can zip us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. And you can find us on Instagram at thegreenrush_podcast underscore podcast. And a special thanks also to you, our listeners, for listening. There's a lot of ways that you could spend your time and attention, and it's pretty awesome of you to spend some of that here with us. So thanks for being part of that story.
3: Cannabis! Cannabis!